0: Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you 24 7 with supplies and solutions for every industry and access to product specialists ready to
1: help. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
0: Thunderstruck.
1: This week on Bowling with Favre, we got a good friend and one of the biggest musicians in the world, Darius Rucker. Darius has been asked, either in a bar, in the airport, wherever, hey... Give me a little bit of hootie. I was at that last night at the bar. But I said no last night. (laughs) And coming up on next week's show, Tuesday the 23rd, we're joined by the legendary Dr. Phil. Subscribe now everywhere you get your podcasts or stream the show for free at podcastone.com. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Lou, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Rob Mahoney of The Ringer, someone I love to have on, and this ended up being a really great conversation that is mostly about the trade deadline, but also branches into some other really fun topics, including the nature of stardom in the NBA, what we're looking for in the league moving forward, so... I really hope you enjoy it, and that's part of why I love having Rob on, is that he's he's thinking big picture extremely well all the time, and so I, I love the conversation. runs well over an hour, I think closer to an hour 20, and I hope you really enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, yeah, anytime, Danny. It's funny, like, I mean, there's always so much ground to cover for a trade deadline. And the purpose of this podcast is not to cover all of said ground, because there are other places, including some stuff that we both do to to handle that. But instead, something I thought was interesting, I was reading your piece at The Ringer, and I w- I've been thinking about, you know, now we have about 24 hours after the deadline. And in certain ways I think we came to different conclusions, but I also think that the different conclusions aren't that different because so you you wrote a piece for the Ringer talking about, you know, like kind of how the how it flattened a little bit. Yeah. And I think that there's an interesting there's an interesting kernel in like kernel in there about like the lower end of the playoff picture, particularly in the East getting stronger. I think that that is that is an important takeaway of this deadline. And then so what's related to that, which I think is interesting, is my top one was that there weren't many new threats at the top. Yeah. And so what's interesting is like I'm sure if somebody like listened to the stuff that I've recorded with Nate yesterday and read your piece at the Ringer, they might think like, oh, we saw this deadline totally differently. But I don't think we did. I think we just focused on different parts of the same picture.
0: No, I think that's spot on. Like, it, however you were going into the deadline yesterday in terms of your view of the league hierarchy or the West hierarchy, hierarchy the West hierarchy or the East hierarchy. I don't know that those would have changed unless you're just a you know a huge George Hill fan or something like that. You know, whatever teams you thought were coming out of those conferences are probably still the teams you would pick. The difference is the probabilities have just shifted a little bit from some of those top teams to you know maybe a little bit more towards the Nuggets or a little bit more towards the Heat. Some of these teams that going into the deadline credibly had a lot of work to do you know to to prove themselves that they could be trusted on that level so I, I think you're spot on the top teams are still the top teams it's just there's a little bit of an opportunity lost for some of those groups in terms of adding a Kyle Lowry or some bench help or some veterans versus some of these kind of you know also ran contenders that are looking to encroach on their space a little bit
1: Yeah, that's what I thought was so fascinating at the deadline is a lot of times, and I think back to the um, idea that this came out, the one that crystallized for me was actually when Kevin Durant went to the Warriors of the idea of part of the value for Golden State of Kevin Durant is he's an incredible basketball player, but a smaller part, but it's still definitely not zero, was they prevented him from being anywhere else. Mm. And so that meant the Thunder weren't the same team, that meant that any other potential suitor didn't have Kevin Durant. And that was, in some ways, the weirdest part about the Kyle Lowry situation is while the Raptors, I expect them to be, I expect them to be a good team. I expect them to make the playoffs and do all that. Even if everything goes right, I mean, yeah, as somebody who was a distinct Raptors optimist to start the season, like they're not really in the title picture. Like that's just yeah. that's not the type of team they are, and that's not damning them with with criticism or anything like that. That's just not the type of team they are. And so instead of Kyle Lowry joining any of those teams whether it was the Lakers or if you saw the heat as that potentially that group or the 76ers he's not in any of those and that's what I thought was so fascinating is that it wasn't it wasn't an arms race it was like the you could argue depending on how you define terms that the most impactful deadline-ish addition to a contender was PJ Tucker and PJ Tucker yeah. like might not be in the closing lineup for the bucks at all like he's he, we, we don't even know really what his role is going to be if you have Denver in that mix then yeah, Aaron Gordon's probably the the clear front runner there, and that is really fascinating when you think about some of the other paradigm shifting moves that have happened over the last year, like the Drew Holiday trade and the James Harden trade, which were clearly that that mold of like the best getting better, and that wasn't really the story of the twenty twenty one trade deadline.
0: No, in a lot of ways, the Harden trade, as as you were alluding to, kind of took the place of what would potentially be that kind of deal. You know, we are we already got our big swing from a contending team this season bringing in another superstar. Now it's about clarifying the picture a little bit, cleaning things up. How can we, you know, improve our rotation in this way or that in some subtle way which could be meaningful. You know, a PJ Tucker, a George Hill, like those guys could be meaningful playoff contributors as we as we've been kind of dancing around here. They're just not on the level of what you might hope if you were if you were really expecting fireworks coming into this deadline and frankly a lot of the league was in expecting Lowry at the very least to be moved. So, you know, it it is an interesting idea to think about who are the teams that are happiest that Kyle Lowry wasn't traded. And certainly the, the other teams that are at the top of the East that weren't really in the running for him, you know, the Milwaukee's and the Brooklyn's I would think were pretty pleased about that. And I would, Ultimately, I think Miami is probably not too deflated about it, even though they wanted Lowry and didn't get him, because it still seems like, you know, at the end of the day, when he hits his free agency, they're going to have a pretty good shot to sign him if that's something they want to do.
1: And it wouldn't surprise me, and there's already been some kind of preliminary reporting to this effect, if Lowry's pending free agency, including one of these suitors, really changed this market. Because think about it from Miami's perspective. Yeah, they have, you know, Jimmy Butler's not a spring chicken. You you don't have the same time pressure as LeBron James, where, you know, thirty-six years old. Don't know how long that's don't don't I mean, even though he's a cyborg sent from the future to rule basketball, you still don't <laughs> know exactly how long it's going to work. Right. And at the same point, do you want to give up you know, their their picks are very limited. Certain young players, you know, we can we there could be haggling about that, and I'm sure there was in real life. But do you want to give that up for somebody who may have indicated to you that if you don't, you can sign him outright and that trading for him, sure, that gives you some additional flexibility in terms of like, then they could stay over the cap. Maybe they could have picked up some of these options, some of that, but maybe they weren't super interested in that. Maybe it was, you know, that, okay, do you really want to pay Andre Iguodala $15 million next year? Probably not. And so, if they were if that 's kind of what Miami was looking for anyway then that 's going to tone it down and then there weren 't that many teams it seemed like in the bidding, and also Toronto totally amenable to keeping him and yep. that that could be keeping him for the next couple of months that could be keeping him for the next couple of years and it it is interesting. Like you hear Toronto people say, like, "Oh, those are the expectations Like the like media was trying was has been trying to trade Kyle Lowry for months. It's like, no, we were just reading the tea leaves and kind of understood where we thought this was going to go. I'm fine with him staying on the Raptors, even though it would have been fun intellectually to see him on a different team for the remainder of this year. Like, this is not an outcome that I'm dissatisfied with.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, it, I mean it's never a bad thing to have a franchise legend get a little more time with. A team and a city and a group of people who adore what he does and value what he does. Like Kyle Lowry in a Raptors uniform is a great thing.
1: Yeah, and they're a relevant team. Like it's not it's not like he's sitting on a five and twenty five team where it's like, oh, Kyle Lowry's going to miss the playoffs and isn't Mm -hmm. this a waste? Like my anger with the Bradley Beal situation. Like and and that is different because it seems like both player and team want the same thing and more power to them. But Bradley Beal being in a circumstance where not only are his town like is he not on a competitive team but things aren't going to be changing anytime soon yeah that i think that is a fundamentally different situation for me than lowry and and also because lowry has reached greater heights partially because he had better teammates he's reached greater heights in toronto than bradley beal has in washington yeah it it does
0: seem to help to have the better team it turns out
1: yeah shock shock of shocks um but so yeah i think that that has really it it really does put a change but then to me the other big storyline and this is something that came up in your piece and is so fascinating, is how different teams react to not necessarily the same situation, but similar ones. And I think the Vucevic trade is the best crystallization, the best reflection of this idea, which is both, to an extent, both Chicago and Orlando pre-trade were kind of in this place of Yeah, they could, like, at full strength, they could make the playoffs. They could also miss the playoffs. But probably not going to win a series if they do make it. So you're kind of in that, let's call it 5 through 10 mix. Mm -hmm. And... Even though Orlando signed their guys to those contracts and they're battling a ton of injuries and Chicago has a new front office and everything else, they made dramatically different decisions. And you could argue that Zach Levine is a big part of that. There There are lots of different points of conversation within that. But I found that so fascinating because usually the arc of the NBA is talented players going from worse teams to better teams in exchange for younger players. And to an extent, that is what happened here. Except that pre-trade, the margin between a healthy Orlando Magic team and a healthy Chicago Bulls team was not nearly as stark as this usually is.
0: Well, I mean, the key word there is the health part of that, right? Sure. And, and how realistic a timeline the Magic could expect between getting some of their best guys back on the floor and fully operational versus some of the contract timelines for guys like or- Gordon and Vucevic. That's, that's a really tough kind of calendar math to have to deal with for a team in their situation, and frankly, this is a team we've been watching for a couple of years, wondering at what point this core is going to have run its course and they're going to start moving some of these guys along. You could argue they've waited a little too long to do that. I think that would be a fair argument to make. But ultimately, I think they got pretty good return given, given the situation they found themselves in. And for a team like Chicago, I 100% understand why they would want to, I mean, for one, just make themselves better now, take a swing at this thing in that kind of mire of, Eastern Conference teams you were alluding to from that, that 5 to 10 range, see how far we can climb in that group. But also, you know, Zach Levine has one more year under contract after this one. Let's see what we can do to retain him. He's been the one kind of shining star of the post-Jimmy Butler era, the one the one nice bright spot for them. To, so to see what they could do to, to give him a real team and, and a support system that could help him thrive. I, I like what's come together there, but I do get your point about the contrast of those two situations. And, and they really aren't that far off, but in some way That's just the story of the Eastern Conference and that particular range of teams, I think.
1: Yeah, it is. And it's also the dynamic that... Well, so this this is an interesting duality with these. So the top three teams, the Sixers, the Bucks, and the Nets, in any order, they're all really good. And you can make an argument that maybe the Celtics or some of these other teams have been knocked down due to circumstance. I mean, the Raptors could have... I don't know if they... I, I thought they could have been in that mix, at least as a regular season team, but so many things have gone wrong for them this season. Yeah, Celtics to an extent. And so what's interesting is... I think there has been an evaluation, particularly by the Bulls, but arguably to some extent by the Charlotte Hornets and the Hawks, that sure, maybe we can get in that mix, but that basically that the the next tier is more open. And they might be right, especially if Kyle Lowry ends up not being a Raptor beyond this year, especially if, you know, Kyle, Kemba Walker isn't quite the same guy anymore. You know, there are lots of different ways that that could work out. And that's why I often use the term defining success as incredibly important. And that's honestly, in most circumstances, it's more of an ownership thing than a general manager thing. But that's why I usually use the term management as opposed to the front office for these sorts of things because doing that. And so what I'm really interested in moving forward is – these teams some of these teams have gone in very different directions how do the people whose opinions on these things matter see that so if chicago not as much this year just because they're already 19 and 24 we'll see how things go it can take time to integrate a player as good as Vooch with a different skill set than they really had before that there aren't really any practices the rest of this year so that will be a challenge for billy donovan and his staff so let's let's say it's the 2122 season if the Bulls are the sixth seed and, you know, are a lot better than they've been now. And they're they're competitive, but maybe they, you know, they lose in five, six games in the first round. That's not a terrible outcome. It's not the best. It's far it's far from the best outcome that they could hope for. But what matters in these circumstances, if we're being kind of pragmatic and about it, is how do the people who matter think about that? And so yeah. does Jerry Reinsdorf see that and go, great, this is exactly what I was hoping for, that's, that's what I wanted? Because there are owners like Ted Leonsis, who it certainly seems like their MO is, we'll do that, we'll chase the eight, we'll get in, we get in, that's great, probably not going to have as much flexibility, but there are some... That would see that same result and be like, this is a disaster. We need to do something. Maybe it's not like trading the whole team or firing the GM or anything like that. And I'm fascinated to see how that goes.
0: I mean, I feel like the context is everything there in terms of where your organization has been. And for a team like the Bulls, when you haven't been in the playoffs in four or five years— suddenly that seven eight spot sounds to start pretty or starts to sound pretty sweet you know that that seems like a good spot for you a good way to measure some incremental progress for your organization to give guys on your team who haven't had much playoff experience a taste of it and a taste of success. And I think the the point of variation for them is Patrick Williams, right? It's you ha- You have Levine, now you have Vucevic. How fast can Williams come along to be a legit difference maker for your team? I- I'm kind of separating him from a Lowry Markkanen, for example, who I think is, you know, kind of is what he is. I think we've kind of charted what he could look like as a player. Williams is so much more of a question mark in terms of both what he'll ultimately develop into and the speed of that development. And that's that's kind of what I think gives Chicago some hope that they could be more than that. If if he can if he can be more than just an interesting rookie who's gonna take some tough defensive assignments and hit some mid-range jumpers, but is going to be a meaningful piece of your team, then you're not in Orlando Magic territory anymore. Then all of a sudden you're you know, maybe you're pushing with the heat for that fifth spot in the east. You know, you're you're kind of you're relevant in a different way if you can get something a bit more substantial from him.
1: That's a great point. And the other element of that, which I think is exceedingly important, and um, Seth Partner brought this up in the collaborative piece that we did, is what are you giving up to do it? And so that isn't necessarily first-round picks, Wendell Carter. It's was there a great nucleus here? And I think that is the other really strong argument in favor of the Bulls doing this, is just instead of being, let's call it like the 8th through the 12th best team in the East over the next couple of years, they're probably going to be the Fourth through the seventh best team in the East. That's that's not as like, and they probably weren't going to be bad enough to really build the asset base. And if the the new front office who didn't draft most of these guys, other than Patrick Williams, didn't think that Markinen and Wendell Carter and maybe Kobe White and some of these other ones are up to snuff, that they're not going to be you know let's call it starters or high end rotation players on a good team. Well, then you're not sacrificing as much in terms of the like the alternate outcome. You know, the sliding doors aren't quite the same. And it's a lot more palatable to make this kind of a move if that's the kind of team you thought you were settling in to be. I'm
0: curious about so many of these other teams in the East, too, in that range as to whether they are, you know, if we want to plot this on a on a, uh, on a spectrum here, going from Orlando level of, of tearing it down to Chicago level of pushing your chips in, you know, where are the Hawks and the Knicks and the Pacers? Like, where are those teams falling? Where after the dust clears with Kyle Lowry in the offseason, where are the Raptors in all this? Are they a team that sees themselves in more of a, let's say, reconceptualization of, of what they could be, you know, kind of retooling and reimagining what their roster would look like on a longer time frame. Or are they looking at Fred Van Vliet and Pascal Siakam and, and OG as their core and trying to add to that pretty immediately to vault, you know, vault themselves up the, the standings. There's, there's so many teams in this range, and the, the Pacers in there too, that could go in, in either direction right now depending on how they're really feeling about some of their core guys and some of the younger guys on their rosters.
1: I'm going to add one more in that I think is a, is a really interesting conversation point, which is the Charlotte Hornets. Oh, yeah. So the Charlotte Hornets, you could make an argument – Have the most intriguing kind of young potential cornerstone of that entire group in Lamelo Ball. You can make an argument for Trey. You can make an argument for a few other guys being in the mix. And that isn't to say somebody like R.J. Barrett is chopped liver or anything like that. Like there, there are plenty of uh, there are plenty of guys, and like there's a chance that none of them reach the level even that like Zach Levine. I mean, I would say that Trey's been better so far this year personally. But that anyway. But that but that uh, that idea is really fascinating too. So like okay for Charlotte. They could have cap space this summer. They they need a center. They could do something like that. How expensive are they willing to go? But also, how does Mitch Kupchak read this terrain? Does he say... Hey, if we wait a year, this is a pretty weak free agent class. Maybe like we we make bids on a couple of guys that we think are good, but if we don't get them, we can take it another year. Or does they go? We just got Gordon Hayward. You know, we were on track to be in this mix. We might still even be there. I I think the Hornets could still be in the playoff mix a month from now if Lamelo. If we're lucky enough to have Lamelo come back that soon, and how do they see it? You know, you get into that mix and. You do, like, and so I think what's interesting about the horn is is basically, like, how aggressively do you want to do it? Where do you want to go? And there isn't a particularly right or wrong answer in the abstract. And I think that's something that people, like, I'm not always an advocate for tearing it down, though I really was in the Orlando case, just because I thought the team they had wasn't good enough. Um, And Charlotte, you know, it's a complicated situation. And it's also very you you brought up the idea of context. I think that that's really important here too. And it's who's interested in your money, what can you do, what is the theory of the team? And so like, yeah, if I don't know if it's drafting a guy or like for the center spot, the guy that I've been thinking for them is Rashawn Holmes. Like, if you can get if, if they get Rashawn Holmes this summer, the Hornets are a much better team. And they already have these intriguing guard players, you know, they have they have a lot of players that age-related the passage of time will help. They also have a couple guys that it will hurt, but that's okay. And They're really interesting in this too, and they didn't do much at the deadline. I mean, they got Brad Wanamaker, but they have a lot of decisions to make.
0: And they're a good reminder that this stuff doesn't have to be polar, right? Right. Look at the name you just threw out, the Rashawn Holmes, which I think is a great target for them. You know, There's some reporting that they were trying to get in on the Nikola Vucevic conversation, which makes sense for them. Really, that's kind of their spot is who can we get that can be a better starting center for us given the pieces we already have? Because the rest of their lineup is pretty solid, and the rest of their young core is pretty solid they just need a better they need a better finisher than Bismack biombo certainly they need a guy who's going to be more versatile and flexible and frankly healthy than Cody Zeller is generally so they just need some reliability at that spot and so they're in a position to make a move. To make one push in, whether that's you know trading a future first, whether that's flipping one of their guards who are a little bit surplus when LaMelo healthy and getting some front court help, but without having to push in everything just yet. So you can see how some of these guys develop together and see where your actual points of need are. Because they have some idea, given what they've seen from LaMelo and the way he interacts with Miles Bridges and P.J. Washington and and Gordon and and the core members of their team. But they're going to have even more data once they see him on the court even more and see how his game changes all those players around him and, and what kind of weaknesses and strengths result from that.
1: Yeah, that's that's a great point, and one way of articulating just just this is so this is so far this year the Hornets are twenty second in defense, and they're you know pretty solid in a lot of the elements that you see, and I would say to an extent they've outperformed the personnel. Although the overall twenty second, I think that's about right. But one thing that's kind of stunning about it is if you look at some of like the constituent elements and so right now hornet's opponents this is using clean the glasses garbage time filter opponents are shooting 66 percent at the rim against them that's really good and they're also taking a ton of shots at the rim which is bad You know, like both those things are bad for the Hornets. And yes, if you improve at that, you might lose something somewhere else, but it's like, oh yeah. So let's say that part of it gets better and they get a few, you know, a few points per hundred possessions better on defense and their offense. There isn't really a reason to think that it'll get worse next year. In fact, I would make an argument that it's going to get better. Then all of a sudden you go from being a little bit of a negative team to being a little bit of a positive team and still being more young and, uh, and like there are reasons to believe it can improve. So it's like, yeah, that's really interesting. But the other team that I was thinking about in terms of in terms of the trade deadline and they didn't do much. They're on the other the other conference is the New Orleans Pelicans. And going back to the Anthony Davis trade, something that stuck with me then was they got a ton of young talent in that deal. They also got a bunch of draft picks from the Lakers, and those draft picks aren't looking great just because the Lakers are good and presumably they're gonna keep Anthony Davis and probably LeBron James for a long time. But they also added all of these talented players that were on, that were already in the NBA, that were more known commodities, Brandon Ingram, Lonzo Ball, Josh Hart. And what has been so fascinating to me about the David Griffin tenure is I, I, my immediate reaction basically when that trade happened is, oh, he's going to have to make a lot of decisions and quickly. Because yeah. these guys are getting new contracts and they're doing everything else. And p- part of it is like certain parts of it worked out really well almost immediately. Like Brandon Ingram was the league's most improved player. He deserved a max contract, which he then got. But I had been kind of wondering okay, well, where is this going? Like, but do you, especially when they got the number one pick, which happened, you know, like right around when Griffith got the job and they got, got Zion Williamson. And yeah, he missed a part of his rookie year, but we got to see how special he was. And it was so strange to me. So I've had this thing of like, okay, they have to figure out what they are, and they have all these things that are happening. And other than trading Drew Holiday, which is a huge caveat. I mean, they traded him; they got an absolute haul and everything else. Those decisions haven't really been made yet, and that is fascinating because now Lonzo Ball is hitting restricted free agency. Josh Hart is hitting restricted free agency. They still—it's do- still not particularly clear like who is their backcourt of the future how they how they want to structure the front court rotation you know like there are all these interesting questions and so I was like oh maybe we'll get the clarity at the deadline
0: nope <laughs> yeah we other than you know kind of reading Stan Van Gundy's exasperation or you know when, when Griff does an occasional press conference or something like that and hearing him talk about the team we don't have a good sense from the pelicans of what indicators matter to them obviously they would like to be better they would like to have a better record they would i'm sure love to have a better defense which has just been abysmal you know by and by and large this season but we don't have a sense of what actually what they value in terms of a player like Lonzo, for example, who we saw them pass on trading at the deadline. But that doesn't mean they're ultimately going to resign him. We, we don't know what that player really means to this franchise and what they would look at as, OK, these are the boxes we want to check to show meaningful progress as a franchise. We, we don't have those yet. And, and I think the Hornets, since we're kind of transitioning off of them, are an interesting contrast in that way where, you know, like, like you mentioned their defense, for example, which. I agree that the Hornets have kind of outperformed their defensive personnel. And some of that is just their reliance on playing zone and playing small. And that's the kind of thing that if you were a team that was a top two or three seed in your conference and you were playing that much zone, that would be a huge red flag. Because that's the exact kind of thing that when you get in a playoff series, teams will tech against and pick apart and they'll really challenge you in that particular way. But if you're a team like the Hornets, who it is meaningful for them to make the playoffs. It's meaningful for them to show that they can take that step as an organization, that they can get a guy like Gordon Hayward in free agency and move up the ladder of the Eastern Conference. The fact that the zone can be attacked and picked apart and and strategized against isn't as relevant to them right now
1: because they're just trying to get in the fight. There is always a pressure to think about teams and situations in the mold of championship or bust. And I mm. it's so healthy to not think about things that way, especially because a lot of teams don't. And this comes up a lot with Trey Young incidentally of like, "Oh, he can't do this, he can't do that. This can be a problem." And the answer is, yeah, that's probably true. But if the Hawks can get to the point where that matters, then they're in a pretty good spot. And it's, it is a really good point with the Hornets to think about that. And also like their talent can get better. And then you, then you can move away from the zone stuff. And it's, it's very important to note the idea that those things work better in the regular season, but then it's kind of the way with some of the like gimmick junk defenses. And I, I use those terms, not as a derogatory thing, just in, in many ways, they can be a, a catch all for, for, they can be a way around inferior talent is mm-hmm. that when you face better opposition, generally one of the things those teams have is players that can exploit those coverages. Like that is just something, you know, it, it, it's sort of like the idea that there are certain teams' personnels that are better in the regular season and worse in the playoffs. Like, And, and that's a, an accusation that's been levied at a lot of te- situations. And I think in a lot of them, it's been correct. And it used to be done more with small ball teams. And we've seen in certain circumstances that wasn't fair, but in other times it's like, Oh, this guy can't switch. This guy isn't great at defending his his player man to man. But I am really interested in how that worked out. And and for New Orleans, I mean, I I don't know how Stan Van Gundy is going. Like it, it is so funny to think about this in the in the context. And like we we talked a fair amount at the beginning of this podcast about the Raptors. And I think that the duality of this is instructive. So last year, the Raptors looked like a great team. You know, they lost Kawhi Leonard, but it looked like they were doing really well. And a part of that was they gave up a ton of threes, but opponents shot the worst percentage on threes of anybody in the league. The New Orleans Pelicans give up a ridiculous amount of threes, and as as things go so far this year, opponents are making a ridiculously high proportion of those threes. That and so it seems like part of the theory of the case for Stan Van Gundy was basically this was this math problem, which the Bucks have done so well, and and a couple other teams in the past, but mostly the Bucks, and. It is in some ways useful to have a reminder that succeeding that way is far from guaranteed. And the understanding, not the understanding that generally speaking, not all the time, but but as as a rule of thumb, teams can do a lot more to control how many threes their opponents take, rather than whether they go in or not. And
0: I think that's part of the reason why you're seeing a lot of defensive thinkers in the league, in terms of the coaches and coordinators, and even the players on the floor, and and how they're reacting and funneling, leaning a little bit more over the last season or two towards protecting the rim instead. And you know, they do want to limit those threes. They want to run guys off the line. They want to. Aggressive in that particular regard, but taking the more stable of those two defensive avenues right like those are the two areas of the floor that everyone needs to be able to defend on some on some level in some capacity if you want to have any hope of winning the title so do you take the one that's a little bit more variable a little bit more reliant on random chance, or do you really try to batten down the hatches and say, you know what no matter what we're going to give up the fewest number of shots at the rim in the league or the toughest shots at the rim in the league I mean this is basically the Utah model right. Uh, of, of defense and of coverage and of, of really philosophy but this stuff is tough and it, it's tough to navigate in, in it you know in the broader conversation we've been having here about what works in the regular season and what works in the playoffs and what your franchise's motivations are like these are franchise organizational level choices that we're talking about trickling down in terms of their motivations and how they shape your decision making as a franchise all the way down to how hard is how hard is this wing gonna close out to the corner? It's it's fascinating just how much that kind of big picture thinking informs everything that a team ends up doing.
1: That's true, and one like one of the big criticisms that I would levy at at Griffin is. It, whether it's him or Stan Van Gundy, however you want to do this, they have they they basically put a lot of eggs in the Bucks basket, which is doing that. And one of the reasons the Bucks were able to do that so well, especially last season, was personnel. And yeah. you have not only Brooke Lopez and Robin Lopez, but you also have the then Defensive Player of the Year protecting the rim. You're throwing that out there, and so the math problem, as the Bucks defined it, was if we. Lower your frequency, we lower your field goal percentage, and also you're not getting fouled as much, and we're getting more defensive rebounds. That overall, even if you haven't hit a barrage of threes, like we're still coming out ahead in the end. One of the things that the Pelicans haven't done, you know, if 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 the idea was that's the motto we're going to replicate, is especially when Stephen Adams is off the floor. But Stephen Adams, you know, like he's a good rim protector. He's not unbelievable. He's not in the Robin. Lopez, Brooke Lopez, even if we want to count Giannis there, like discussion, like he's not that he's not that level of player, is that the Bucks had last year had that personnel 48 minutes a game, like, or at least close to it. But when Stephen Adams has been off the floor in particular, they ha- the Pelicans just haven't had those guys. And so if your defensive philosophy is we're going to protect the rim and we're going to give up threes, you damn well better protect the rim. And when you're playing Jackson Hayes and Willie Heron and Gomez, because Jackson Hayes was so bad at the beginning of the year, you're not going to be doing that. And so that is a part of why those lineups without like, so the, part of the reason that the pelican's defense looks so bad is that the let's call them the non-adams minutes not that he is the only catalyst here but those minutes have been absolutely disastrous and a lot of that is because they can't do what they want to do
0: there's so many kind of meaningful differentiating points between those two teams where you know as, as we've been talking about even if their strategies are exactly parallel or identical in terms of what they want to take away You know, the difference between, you know, you mentioned just having the defensive defensive player of the year caliber guy in Giannis versus a defender like Zion, who I don't want to I don't want to spend too much time carping about what he can't do, but who doesn't really understand how to rotate defensively yet, who doesn't understand how to use what he could do to help a defense yet. And you can trickle on down to the you know, if you're talking about closing out to a shooter. I don't want to put too much stock in you know in terms of what what goes into opponent three point percentage and oh it's really this thing you can control because as we've been talking about it's really more about the number of attempts and restricting those things and you know funneling opponents to work in different ways but it's just a different proposition to have Chris Middleton closing out on the perimeter versus JJ Redick right like th- that difference of. Four inches, probably in terms of height. That's that's an open shot versus a, a contested shot. That's a, that could be a make versus a miss, depending on the shooter. It could rush somebody who might otherwise be taking their time in their windup. Like that's a that's a huge deal. And the problem with the Pelicans, you know, I, I've been trying to get my my brain wrapped around them all season because they have some good defensive personnel you know again we can we can say what we want about zion but even the guys who aren't great defenders on their team are generally guys who try you know a guy like redick for example who is older who is is more limited athletically but he's going to try to be in the right places he knows what he needs to do adams is a good defender Bledsoe can be an all nba level defender although I, certainly hasn't been at that level this season we've seen flashes from ingram although i'm I'm not really a fan of his defense overall but there should be enough there to cobble together something and it's just between having you know these guys over here who are a little shorter for their matchups these guys over there who are a little slower for their matchups and you blend it all together and you just end up in this really miserable place in terms of being able to cover the floor and deal with a variety of threats and really solve the problems of a modern defense and they just don't have the pieces to do that right now and some nights it looks like a flaw of of the team itself and the roster and the players they have some nights it looks like those guys just aren't bought in fully aren't really investing and committing themselves the way you want a playoff level defense to do so there's a there's a lot of finger pointing to go around in terms of what's not working right now in new orleans but In a lot of ways, every question they have is secondary to Zion is great. Not not just good, but great. And everything we do can revolve around that and and prey off that and and draw from that. And we we can still be a pretty good team, even if we are deeply flawed in some of these particular
1: ways. And that might be a part of why... Griffin ended up kind of slow playing What whatever is going to happen next is over the course of this season, especially, I think that was like a month and a half ago, if memory serves, they started getting more to the offense that a lot of us dreamed of when, like, I, when I watched Zion's Duke highlights, and and even on, in some ways, beyond that, is that he's so dynamic with the ball in his hands. You get into some of these circumstances where he gets the ball, you know, with with a defender reacting to him, and he's so much faster, you know, and, and all these other advantages that he can wield depending on who you're trying to put on him. And so, putting the ball in Zion's hands more often, just like I've argued for Carl Anthony Towns and numerous other, you know, really talented players who happen to be taller than point guards, and. If that's what you're going to do. Who else –
0: Danny, sorry not to interrupt you, but who else do you put in that category out of curiosity into the let's get this big guy or this big wing more kind of handoff or or pick-and-roll type touches?
1: Jokic, obviously. I mean he's in that. I think people sometimes lose sight of how big LeBron James is. Sure. (laughs) Like LeBron and – Simmons is different because – he He thrive he doesn't thrive in the same places like in some ways it'll be interesting to see how over the over the next couple of years how Simmons is used in the half court versus how Zion is used in the half court like they have very different advantages, but also like remember like Ben Simmons is significantly taller than Zion, even though he's significantly narrower than Zion, <laughs> and they're both wonderful athletes in their own way. Uh, outside of the, well, Towns, I already mentioned.
0: Yeah, I think that's an interesting, I hadn't really thought about Towns in that particular way. Obviously, you want to see him, you know, get more touches in as much of a modern context as you can, while also balancing the fact that you, you do want him to post up and especially to attack certain kinds of mismatches here and there. But he he's a really interesting point of comparison for Zion. I wouldn't have pegged him for that kind of role, but I can see it.
1: And it's it's interesting because Towns and Zion do not have the same strengths, but in terms of brass tacks and like really what that role looks like, it's the, the ideal one would be different, but not as different as like almost any other two two players of their like of of the kind of big variety. Just because there aren't there aren't that many different ways to do it, at least that we know right now. I am optimistic, just with his reputation and what I've seen so far from the Timberwolves, that Chris Finch is probably a good a good chance has a good chance of doing it. Which is exciting, like even though I t- I did a whole podcast with John Krasinski where part of it was talking about the the intense flaws and really troubling stuff in their process with you know mm. basically like hiring a permanent coach without you know really considering anybody else, but right. it might work out in that sense and that you know like that doesn't make it that doesn't justify the process that doesn't do any of that stuff, but if it works out, it's a different conversation. So I'm hopeful, but we're not all the way there yet, and that would make certain parts of the Timberwolves experience look and feel a lot better. But... Outside of those guys, I mean, I don't know that there are that many others that I'm just, you know, it seems like there's a ton of untapped potential because remember, one of the most important skills that those players need is at least a decent functional handle. Like you can Mm -hmm. do, you can do it other ways. Like you can, like, I mean, Jokic is a good dribbler. Like I think some people say that, but he's not like, you know, he's not Kyrie Irving out there or anything crazy like that. And you can do it in different ways. Like Zion needs to tighten up his handle too, but passing vision, you know, the, the, like the, the the timing, the understanding of where everything goes. Like it's really, it's really a, you have to have a really extreme set of skills, both physically and mentally to make it work. And so I think that either there, there, there might be other guys. I mean, we're seeing what, what's happening with Julius Randle. Like maybe like, I think in trusting giving those guys a shot. I think is is worth it if you if you kind of don't have another way to go. And, and Randall was I mean Randall's had more gifts, you know too. Like he was you know you could argue that he was underutilized in that way. It was just the question was always can he be good enough at this to justify giving him the latitude? And so far, to much to Thibodeau's credit, the answer appears to be yes. And I think it's
0: okay too if that kind of approach is more of just a counterpunch sure. for the rest of what a guy does. You know, Like you're saying, you really do have to have a pretty sophisticated handle and a good read on the game in a very specific kind of way to work in the capacity that Zion is right now. You know, we, we take for granted sometimes that even the guys who are good ball handlers, who are good passers, if you're running them off a screen into a handoff where they're getting the ball in a different space in the floor, at a different angle, with a different kind of momentum, that can be a totally different kind of read than what they're used to, especially for a non point guard type player, you know, someone who doesn't have countless reps reading defenses in this particular way. This is more just a part of what they do. And so if you can selectively deploy that, if you can limit that, um, if you can, you know, just get a defense having to think in a different kind of way, like you mentioned, Chris Finch, who, you know, in in his time already has used cat in some sets, like a shooting guard, basically, you know, running around staggered screens into corner threes, which is just a crazy thing to see a guy his size doing. But I think presents an example of what you're talking about with a, a Zion-esque approach, which isn't even necessarily about you know a, a specific style or a specific angle or attack, but this mentality of using bigs in, this partic- in, a, in a different kind of way than what they might u- be used to, and most importantly, forcing defensive bigs to have to guard them, doing things that you know, how many centers have really had to trail a guy cat size as he runs around staggered screens into a three. It's just not a thing that they've had to comprehend.
1: Well, and it's it's such a fascinating next logical step in the true idea of positionless basketball, which is it's not just you can have a seven foot guy and use him the way you would use a traditional point guard. It's that you can put different players in completely different roles. And at some point, we're also going to see the corresponding shift in terms of, well, that means maybe potentially you defend them differently. And that's also why Towns is such a game breaker and why I was obsessed with his potential when he, when I saw, when I saw the college film on him and his rookie year, is it's one thing to have. A competitive advantage that it's really hard to counter it's another thing to have a second competitive advantage that you can use when they count when they when they throw that thing at you and that for towns is that he's one of the best post-up guys in the league yeah. So it's different than Porzingis. Like, I'm there were there were comparisons when those guys were younger about like you know they're, because they're both incredibly un- an unusually offensively talented tall dudes. So there's a, there's a nature to compare them, but the versatility and depth of Towns' game and just the nature of his body. Is that he always had this other element that Porzingis just hasn't cultivated. And, and some of that is Porzingis' ceiling as a post up player is lower because he's a little bit longer. He doesn't have the same kind of strength in his lower body, all these types of things. But it's also, and also, he just doesn't move as well. And so, okay, let's say the, like, if you get into this space where Towns is moving a lot more, if a team tries to put a smaller player on him as the base alignment, then one, that team is going to have to figure out where in the world they're going to put their bigger dude which is a challenge in certain circumstances and two depending on who new orleans uh, sorry who minnesota has on the floor you might be putting that guy who's now on towns into some real problems and so the idea that of i mean and it's incredibly hard to execute of basically having having you could call it two or three different offenses depending on how the team wants to defend your best player like that's incredibly exciting
0: and that, I think, is, is a, the source of a lot of the exasperation with the Wolves, that you have a player like that and you haven't been able to cobble together, whether through lack of imagination or flawed personnel or, I mean, you know, Towns has been in and out of the lineup for various reasons and, and undergone incredible personal tragedy lately. I'm not trying to saddle him with not doing enough or anything like that, but just over the years in terms of the the inability to create a foundation there is very frustrating. And, and it's it's hard to... To think of guys in this context and to compare them in this way and to like you're like you were you know talking about with Porzingis and towns, guys who can do some of the same things but in many ways none of the same things, at least in a meaningful way, and who have such radically different approaches and really radically different, I think, prime utilities on the floor. This is where, you know, when you get into things like ranking players, for example, which I've done a lot in my career, and this is the level of conversation you have to have about it. it you know, it's it's you know, to circle back to what works in the regular season and what works in the playoffs to what works In this kind of offense versus that one, to how does this player's skill set open itself up to a a different styles of defense or different you know varieties of coverage? Can they be a zone guy? Do they have to be a man guy? Can they be a drop guy? Do they you know do they have the skill set to be a a hedge or a trap guy? There's so much conceptual stuff that goes into understanding who in the league is actually good, and you know. Teams get to do that through a very specific lens at the deadline when they're looking around and seeing who can fit what we do. It's such a different exercise, I think, for us in the media when we're trying to broadly understand, like, who are the top 10 guys in the league, which I don't know if you've had to do that lately or think about that lately is impossible. You know, the, the, the high end talent, talent of the league is so good and so varied. If you feel like you have a definitive answer for who is 1 through 10 right now, I I would love to hear the process behind that because I don't know what it is. I don't know how you separate Dame Lillard from Luca, from Embiid, from Kawhi, and what those guys are giving you in such different contexts. It's... It's a hopeless endeavor, and it's a reason why I think a lot of rankings feel a little hollow or shallow, but you know, in, in a lot of ways, that's what we're always kind of figuring out, whether it's who we're going to vote for or for MVP or who do we consider to be the prime building blocks in the league or the, or the best superstars out there. There's, there's so many ways into this kind of conversation that it's something we have to think about.
1: It isn't necessarily a perfect reflection of it because they're measuring two different things. But for example, when Nate and I did awards a few weeks ago, my first tier of MVP, so including number one, was seven guys. Like yeah. that is ludicrous. Like that it is. It, it's almost hard to convey. Like I haven't had a seven-player tier in like an MVP conversation at any tier at any point. Like that is. Way too big, and that just and and some of that is a few of the guys who have been arguably better have missed some time. Like mm-hmm. Joel Embiid is my permanent was my permanent MVP so far, but he's missed so much time, and playing is a part of value, you know. Like and and it's unfortunate that that's in my at least in my book, but probably in a lot that's gonna hurt LeBron, and it's going to hurt Embiid this year, but them's the breaks to an extent as well. Like, that's that's the nature of choosing an award, naming your award most valuable player and having it <laughs> in the criteria, is that that's what you're choosing for. But it is a really, it is a really challenging... Thing to try to evaluate, what I think has been kind of the touchstone of this conversation is context. And I was excited when Ryan Saunders replaced Tibbs and he talked about we're going to, you know, going to do more with towns. And, and they did, to to Saunders' credit. But then we're also seeing post Saunders that I think Finch is going in an even broader direction. And I think that is the most interesting takeaway that I have from the last couple of years. And some of that is the empowerment of Jokic and some of these other things is that. The most important decision that a front office and a coaching staff can make is identifying and understanding special. Then when you get to that point, you have to have a very real conversation and it it needs to get real abstract in certain circumstances of what can we do to maximize this special. And remember, we're talking about 10 to 20 people on the planet. We're not talking about fifty or sixty NBA players. Like this this very narrow group and there a lot of them are special in very different ways. Like John Morant is special physically and, you know, as a basketball player in very different ways than Zion, even though both of them, you know, have connections to South Carolina. They went one and two in the same draft. But those players whether they're 35 or 22 or 19 those are the system definers and what i'm hopeful for is that as you know as we get a new generation of coaches as we also get some coaches succeeding in new ways and success breeds copycats and everything else is embracing that to a more full extent. And I think the current generation is doing a better, the current generation of coaches and players is doing a better job than their predecessors. Like you think about what, I'll give an example. Charles Barkley got more latitude than a lot of guys from what I understand. You know, I'm not a historian in basketball, got a lot more latitude than other guys of his era. Imagine what with modern spacing and some of the approaches that are getting more in vogue now, imagine what, you, what a team would ask him to do now.
0: Yeah, I think our, our understanding, and I say our in a kind of a very broad basketball cultural context, our understanding of what a star's value is and all the ways it can be extrapolated and stretched and and used to fill the space and better your team all that is constantly expanding and improving and i think that's probably one of the biggest shifts in the dynamic of the league it's not just that superstars have more power but their stars and teammates understanding of what a james harden for example could do for their team it- and it's to the point where, I mean, this was, I think this was true to some degree across eras, but is especially true now, that whenever you're talking about any kind of player movement, any kind of adjustment to a lineup, any kind of change whatsoever as far as personnel is concerned, what teams want to know most or at least should want to know most is what does this mean for our star player? You know, the Heat The heat get Nemanja Bialica. What does that mean for Jimmy Butler? And what does that mean for Bam Bio The Clippers get Rajon Rondo. What does that mean for Kawhi Leonard? And what does that mean for Paul George? And if the answer is nothing or it hurts them or it's it's really not serving any purpose to your best players, that's probably not a move you need to make because you're, you're then concerning yourself with what's happening in the five to eight minutes that they're not going to play in a playoff game. And you're putting a lot of stock and you're giving up picks to improve that time at the expense of everything else. And that's not to say that you don't want to pay attention to those things or put the best non-star lineups on the floor or stagger your rotation, whatever you need to do to play the best 48 minutes you can. But all of it really does come back to those 10 to 12 to 20 guys, depending on how you know where you want to draw the lines and how you want to tier things out and what teams are doing to to best extract as much value from them over the course of a season as they can while keeping them healthy enough to play the games that matter the most.
1: And what makes... This thought experiment that is actually reflecting on NBA courts now, so exciting beyond the obvious, is... Great players do not succeed and thrive in the same way. Mm -hmm. So Kawhi Leonard has grown so much offensively over the course of his career. He has become a superstar in ways that were very hard to foresee in the early going. And there maybe are examples, hopefully, are of other players. You know, being able to expand their roles. Like maybe Jalen Brown gets there. Probably he doesn't. Odds are nobody does. But you know, you get there. But building, whether it's building a system, building a team, building a roster around his unique gifts is so fundamentally different from doing that around John Morant or even LeBron James. Like in many ways, those players are physically similar, but they're not the same and what they're good at. And I mean, I think that's been a, such an interesting part mm-hmm. to me of the LeBron evolution is that he is because he's partially because he's so intelligent and partially just because of everything else, he is much more dangerous as a kind of defensive, the way we think of it as a power forward, you know, the help responsibilities and everything else than he is as a three at this point in his career. Yeah. And That is not a criticism. That is just the way things are. And that's a part of why I was so critical of the Montrezl Harrell signing was basically like, why why spend these resources on a guy who's not going to be on the floor in your best lineups? And that is a luxury that maybe the Lakers thought they could afford. And Montrezl Harrell is a very good basketball player. And we're seeing him be more valuable now, incidentally, because these guys, the other guys are out. And if they had gotten somebody who was more limited, but arguably a better fit with the Towns... Sorry, not Towns. Anthony Davis at center, LeBron at the four paradigm, then they might be in bigger trouble right now. But it is so fun because... A, there isn't necessarily a right answer. And even if there were a right answer, it would be so different in each circumstance and that doesn't mean any team has the flexibility to do it and also like i think the nets are such an intriguing example of this we unfortunately haven't gotten to see them in full strength but it's even at partial strength it's a good reminder that great players can be great in different ways in different circumstances and so like i've enjoyed watching this iteration of harden quite a bit i've honestly enjoyed it more than the the than last year on the rockets maybe his best years on the rockets i think were in some ways more fun than this year but remembering like oh yeah he's he's a special Spectacular passer. He doesn't have. It doesn't have to just be what uh, Nate called the like that he'd become a caricature of himself because he was just basically doing the same stuff over and over again. But he didn't have the diversity in his game offensively that Harden did during his MVP season. That oh yeah, that's still there. And also he can do all this other stuff because now he's playing with other teammates. Now he's playing with different teammates. And like we're seeing some of that with the Paul George Kawhi situation and LeBron and AD. Like that LeBron has opened up new things from Anthony Davis's game. And the idea that combinations of star players can also open up facets that you don't that you don't you can't even necessarily consider when one of these players is on their own.
0: And that's what a team like the Bulls would be hoping for with on a lesser level. You know, you're not sure. on a Kawhi Paul, Paul George level, but, you know, giving Nikola Vujovic a chance to play in some space to, well, to and giving room. Zach
1: Levine a pick and roll oh partner God, like yeah. Vuj. Like that. It's going to be fantastic for Levine.
0: I had been I had been trying to think about what the next step for the Bulls would be throughout a lot of this season because I had just been so impressed, honestly, with the player that Levine had become and the the, the you know the difficult shots he hits, the incredibly challenging threes off the move, you know, rounding the corner, how quickly he's been able to square himself up to the basket. I've just been so impressed with him that I'm wondering, like, oh my god, how do we get this guy someone who can make his life easier? And my thought was always. More towards like more towards guards, more towards playmakers, more towards people who could do a little bit more of the orienting and the organizing of the offense. So he could just focus on being a flame throwing scorer. And I don't know why it didn't occur to me that Vucevic and someone like him would be a prime offensive fit. You know, the, a playmaking big, which you know Vucevic to his credit has really made himself into one of the better better passing bigs in the league and a real legit elbow hub of an offense. And what that could do for a guy like Levine, you know, it's not. It's not Jokic, it's it's not at that level, but in terms of facsimiles and other bigs who can give you some of the same the same shape of motion and what you could put what situations you could put a guy like Levine into I think Vucevic is going to be so great for his game I, I really am eager to see how those two play off each other
1: one other just kind of stray note that I wanted to talk about briefly before before we go is I I, I just saw the I just saw a tweet say basically saying that the starting lineup for the Raptors tonight is Lowry Van Vliet Gary Trent juniors Ananobi, and Siakam it's like a this Raptors team is going to be so much fun to watch the rest of this year <laughs> And also, the Portland part of that trade is really interesting to me, because my first response is, it feels like a gigantic mistake for the Blazers, as much as I love Norm Powell as a player, because the things he's best at are things that the Blazers don't need as much, and the things he's limited at, they could use quite a bit, even after getting Robert Covington and Derek Jones Jr., But also the weird restricted, unrestricted free agency, and so. But I'm skeptical. I love being wrong. (laughs) Like if 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 Norm Powell just like he's just such a monster, makes them an unstoppable offense. They're getting Nurkic back today. I would love to see that. I would love to be wrong. See them just be a gangbuster and just break break some of these walls down. And I'm excited to see where it goes.
0: Yeah, it's not a perfect fit for them, just in terms of you know Powell's uh, an okay defender. Nothing really to write home about there. He doesn't really address. Their specific needs and what you would want in a compliment to Lillard and McCollum in particular, how he's going to fit playing alongside both of those guys is a question. I think Trent was a little bit better suited to that just as more of a a pure off-ball player and also I think just a a stronger defender who could guard different kinds of players that could complement the two stars pretty well there. But what I keep coming back to is, like, Powell's the best player in that deal. You know, it's I, – I don't think it's especially close. Like, I think with the way he's played this season, he's earned that, and – is is there something so wrong about just looking at that and saying, hey, we can consolidate two wings, one of whom we're gonna have to pay in restricted free agency pretty soon for one better wing who we'd also have to pay in unrestricted free agency? And if if he ends up leaving, then we'll we'll cobble together other means of filling out a rotation. But let's see if we can get some some more offense into our rotation beyond you know, to compensate for what we're giving up in, you know, giving big minutes to Rob Covington and to Derrick Jones Jr. into filling out, you know, some of the defensive specialists, or at least guys who focus on defense that they really need to to survive in Portland. So, yeah, it's not a clean fit at all. The market for Powell, I think, was fascinating in a way that, you know, it really connects to what we were talking about earlier with Lowry and what teams were willing to pay for a guy like that and whether they, they thought of him as, is this a guy we're going to be able to resign or is this kind of a short-term rental situation where – You know, you have guys like Fournier and Oladipo and Powell who, you know, teams gave up some stuff for them, but it's not like they had to pay an exorbitant price to get some pretty good players because there's not a lot of certainty beyond this season. And the fact that Powell ended up where he did at the price he did, I mean, that was a trade I didn't see coming, to say the least.
1: Yeah, I didn't see it coming either. and. I wonder if I mean if Paul Allen hadn't passed, and we'll see what we'll see what happens with ownership there. I would have said, "Oh, they'll they'll just you know, Powell's a good player. They'll just pay through the nose and, and keep him and all that." Is, it could be a degree of CJ McCollum insurance? The challenge there, though, is. This year, and I've written about it some. I'm going to write about it more. It's a real minefield for teams because they're after all these good players signed extensions. And it would have been it would have been true before that. It's just more true now. There are there's more money available than there are players worthy of that money. And so what that's going to lead to is certain guys just getting crazy paid. And it's always more likely. Like Mason Plumlee is a good example. You could go. I mean, Jeremy Grant, even though he's living up to that contract, is another example. It's so much easier with unrestricted free agents because you know if you if you make the best offer and they want to come, you're getting them. And I think in some ways the bet that Masai Ujiri made with the Trent Powell trade is I think he thinks that their their the margin in terms of talent is smaller. And I'm closer to him than to you. Just I I think Gary Trent's a, an interesting player, and I, I also I also value what he does what he does well and mm-hmm. and all that. But it's also the the idea that whatever the perceived difference in terms, whatever the difference in terms of quality of player, both in terms of the just sheer control you get from match rights, but also yeah. the way that those affect negotiations, that whether or not they quote unquote deserve it, the actual difference in price and risk of losing them for Powell and Gary trying is significantly different. And that as a cap CBA nerd is just catnip to me. The idea that, and and the only way we're going to get a very limited sample to find out whether or not that's true, but we are <laughs> going to get contract values for both of these players within the next eight months. And so that's great. You know, like that, it's really uh, probably next six to, I mean, assume the, assuming things don't linger. Um, so I don't know who ends up being right. I have an inclination, but you can also make an argument. I mean, depending on how the Blazers see themselves and see everything else, that that's not maybe why they did the trade.
0: The the pricing of those contracts, I think you're absolutely right in terms of where they fall in the market and this particular market, which as you alluded to, is just not, it's not what you want. If you're a team with cap space, you don't want to look out there and, you know, see, Kawhi Leonard, who, you know, will probably resign, but even if he doesn't, you know, is is really only open to a select group of teams. And then you're looking very quickly into John Collins territory, who I like John Collins. But if that's kind of your, your second or your third or your fourth, you know, free agent on the market. And, and the money that it's going to take to get a player like him. I, mean, I can only imagine what that's going to mean. Just the, the amount of money swimming around and, and for teams that are that are pursuing Powell or pursuing Trent and, and trying to get in on those guys. And who knows financially how teams are going to look at next season in terms of their spending if they're going to look at it as, oh, we're going to have fans in arenas again. The NBA revenue is going to get back on track. Now we can afford to open up our wallets a little bit. Now we can afford to make some more exorbitant you know, spends in terms of contracts we're giving out, are they going to be more willing to to pay to really to overpay guys like Powell and Trent on the market uh, relative to what they might be worth because of the state of the NBA at that point? I mean we we just have no idea. But there's there's so many kind of macroeconomic factors Uh, both in terms of the way teams are run and also where the money that fuels those teams comes from. If you're, you know, if you're, you know, let's say hypothetically, this is just purely a hypothetical, a team whose owner, uh, you know, gets all his money from hotels and restaurants. How will that impact, you know, your spending once people are actually in those hotels and restaurants again? Although that that may be a bad example because I'm not sure that's really going to affect anything in terms of how much that particular team spends or doesn't spend, mostly doesn't spend. But, you know, there, there's just so much to chew on uh, in the near future of the league, and how the the next wave of free agency is going to factor into that. I'm, I mean, I'm my head is spinning just trying to pin down what that could mean for everybody.
1: As a stray note, I know myself. I know my I know my proclivities. I will be 100% obsessed with the protection on this Rockets pick. <laughs> so the shorthand version of this is, is that. I just want to firm it up, make sure I have it exactly, exactly right. Okay. So if Houston's pick ends up after the lottery being one, two, three, or four, they keep it and it is exempt from the swaps with OKC and everything else. Mm -hmm. If that pick ends up five or anywhere else, which we know it's not, it's not going to be worse than 14 because I'm pretty sure that the Houston Rockets aren't going to make the playoffs. Bold, bold take there. Though it's possible technically. What makes this beyond like, what makes this so crazy is that the league flattened the lottery odds. And so even if the Rockets got all the way down to, let's call it, they got all the way down to the to the worst record in the league. It actually technically doesn't make a difference if you're in the bottom few picks. It's basically a coin flip. And think about how impress- how important that coin flip is for the arc of the league, especially when you consider that it's either the Rockets or the Thunder, who already have Shea Gildas-Alexander and have all these other, have, you know, 30, I think it's 34 picks over the next few years in various configurations. It is insane and
0: i think it's especially meaningful in how how we're going to look at and talk about the aftermath of losing a superstar player even though you know that particular pick isn't collateral damage from trading james harden but if if the rockets are able to quickly you know reset and get a you know a star in the making uh, it, it, by keeping that pick and being able to use it it just reframes the whole conversation around that team in a way that if they they lose it and then all of a sudden they're not getting very much in terms of the yield from those brooklyn picks you know they're they're not really able to uh, improve themselves through the draft in the ways that clearly they're really banking on and hoping because they chose not to really get much player compensation in that deal. Oh, my God. I mean, things could get very dark for that franchise very quickly. And then that changes everything we think about when we talk about, you know, players requesting trades and what that means for a franchise and what the ideal return looks like. You know, it's, it's pretty clear at this point that Houston's way to go about it is, is not the ideal it's not it's not exactly what you want in terms of you know when you when the time comes and your best player does ask to be traded what are you looking for in a potential return uh, i don't think houston is going to be the uh you know the mba model that everyone's looking at for that particular course of action but there's there are some dark universes that we could round into pretty quickly if if we get into uh some of the eventualities that would involve them not conveying or rather passing on that pick.
1: That's true. But it could also, I think it could also turn quickly and I've been encouraged by the job overall that Rafael Stone has done since taking over. Interesting. I, I think, you know, not every part of it and the other huge factor. And I, sometimes I think I get myself in trouble where, you know, sometimes general managers get credit and blame, usually blame for things that aren't yeah. their fault. Yeah. And I don't. My inclination is that Rafael Stone didn't prefer Victor Oladipo to Karis Levert. He didn't think he was a better player, didn't think it was a better asset, but that this, the circumstance got that way. Also, I don't know that I can give him that much credit for it because part of your job is also to con, to convince your owner. You know, like that sure. is that is another part of this equation. And if that, you know, if, if I'm giving Stone credit for the evaluation, then I should give him blame for the persuasion part of it. But the picks that they got from Brooklyn, I mean, the Nets are distinctly different. Like, that's something that I think is really an interesting split between the Harden trade and the Anthony Davis trade. Is Anthony Davis is younger. And it seemed like he was more, you know, for a variety of reasons, more committed to being in L.A. He hadn't signed this extension yet, but, you know, we kind of had an idea that he wanted to stick around. And so the idea for me that a laker centric thing, like if my bet moving forward is basically, you know, in most in most points of time is that the Lakers are going to be a good team. I remember like four years ago, I was doing a Reddit AMA and somebody asked me like which team that didn't make the playoffs is going to win the championship the next. And I said the Lakers, who were terrible at the time. <laughs> and, uh, and I ended up being right, i believe, I believe they, because the Raptors had made the playoffs that year that I, that I was right, and that is a, it is a fair assumption to make when you think of the competitive advantages that they have. That the Lakers will be good. Brooklyn, certainly possible, but less likely when you consider the combustibility of their talent and when you consider kind of where they are in the success cycle. That, you know, the the Nets could have a wonderfully successful next three years and still be terrible five years from now. Yeah. Like that. And, and like they could feel great about it. Like, that, like it, the, this trade could be the best thing that has happened to the Nets franchise ever. And the Nets could still be abysmal five years from now. <laughs> And so that's that's what makes that bet different than, well, what if the Lakers are bad seven years from now when we're giving them Anthony Davis? Yeah, I mean, it was not a trade
0: that was engineered to look good today in, in the Rockets defense. Like, that's just not the way it's structured, not the way it's built. And as you were alluding to with the Nets, this is in a lot of ways still their honeymoon. You know, it, in terms of their success cycle, as you mentioned, they haven't undergone any of the, the questions and the stuff that the noise that a team like Milwaukee has gone through, for example, where you hit a wall in the playoffs, you're insufficient in some particular way, you struggle against a particular kind of opponent, and all of a sudden everything about your team is down to the one thing you can 't do the one thing you 're doing wrong, and maybe maybe that will be the conversation after the season if you know they they run into an opponent in the playoffs they can 't stop, and their defense is you know is problematic in that way, maybe that will be kind of what the talking point around that team will, will be for a year or two in the in the way that some of these other contenders have had to deal with. All of which is to say this is the easy part for the Nets. You know? like they're trying to get everybody on the floor. They have guys like Harden who can carry so much for you in the regular season and who can make you such a good, competent team night to night that they don't have to worry about dropping games, they don't have to worry about the standings. But that team will eventually run into some problems, and and this the, the question with them was always when you start getting into the really hard work, when you start getting into the really tough stuff of surviving playoff series and dealing with animosity and dealing with you know just the normal things that come up when a, a team of highly competitive people is around each other all the time and and, and you know vying for something like as pressure packed as an NBA championship. What happens to to James Harden and Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant in those circumstances? What happens to the chemistry? of this team when they're really up against it and we have no idea what that looks like yet all we get to see is oh james harden is awesome and kevin durant when he's on the floor is unbelievable and Kyrie irving has been a dream in terms of deferring and finding his role and figuring out what he can be for this team all that stuff has been great so far but we're really just scratching the surface of what a contending nets run even looks like
1: the funny part is that is totally correct and i think it's it's important and i i'm so happy that you mentioned it It's also possible that they don't have those kind of walls this year. They make the NBA Finals. They they win it. (laughs) And then remember, this is such an unprecedented situation where all three of their superstar players have player options in the same year. They came together and it's a year and a half away. And, you know, if we're using basketball reference ages, this is Kevin Durant's age 32 season. This is James Harden's age 31 season. This is Kyrie Irving's age 28 season. There are so many different ways 2022 can go. And it will, of course, be informed significantly by what has happened before that point. I mean, you could look at Kevin Durant's history and, and see that. You can look at a lot of different other things there, too. But also, like, it could go incredibly well and still pro- and produce whether it produces a championship between now and then or, you know, they're consistently competitive. But partially inspired by Kevin Durant and everything else. like There's also a fragility in it that, while I hope it doesn't happen with the Nets, I hope it doesn't happen with any great team, that like one of the other scenarios that I would argue that Houston bet on in that trade, because remember, they have a swap in 2027 and then a straight first in, I believe it's 24 and 26, is that one of the other ways this plays out is it goes super well, everybody resigns, ownership is cool, paying them crazy amounts of money, and then four years from now these guys are in their mid-30s and they just aren't as good anymore and like that that's the other like the other really interesting way that this could theoretically play out we don't know if it's going to but it's like it it is like i think that's maybe the part of this that's underappreciated from houston's perspective is that they're willing to like it it doesn't really move the needle much for houston if the nets are great the next couple years because that's not the bet they made
0: yeah all great teams are fragile every single one and some of that is personality driven, some of that is ego driven, some of it is financial, some of it is just the tension that comes with competing at that level. I mean, you can look at, you know, what what's been going on with the Warriors and some of the stuff that Steve Kerr has said lately about, you know, the last season that he that they were really contending and the strain that that put on him and lots of people in that organization feel the same way and you could find parallels in any team that's been to the finals or made deep playoff runs a couple years in a row it takes a lot out of you and it it challenges you and stresses you in ways you don't always anticipate. So, you know, and especially as you as you uh, touched on with how near some of those guys or all those guys could be to free agency if they want to be I mean it, it puts an incredible strain on your whole organization when you have those kinds of opt outs and you can really look at Le- LeBron and the Cavs for kind of the textbook example of that and if you have the players sometimes it doesn't matter you can win championships anyway you can make runs the conference finals anyway you can do incredible things even in those circumstances and a lot of teams do but it's certainly been the downfall of so many different promising groups, teams that we thought would be contenders, teams that we thought would be, oh, their window is just opening. They're going to they're gonna be here. They're going to be in this conversation for the next five years. And then within a year and a half, everyone is gone or half the team is gone or two of the three stars are gone. That's just the way it breaks sometimes.
1: Even though I wasn't following basketball intently then, my touchstone for that has been and probably will be for the rest of my life, the Shaq Kobe Lakers. And they had a great run. Like they had a longer run than a lot of these great teams did. But it also ended much more quickly than it could have, and it wasn't due to a catastrophic injury. It wasn't. It was you know largely just a personality clash. And as you brought up, there are a lot of different ways that it can fall apart. And I remember going on radio in in the San Francisco Bay Area the year that the Warriors, the year that the Warriors went seventy three and nine. And what I kept on saying every single time I was on is I'm like, enjoy this while it lasts because you never know how long it's going to be. And it lasted yep. longer for them than me- many of us would have would have anticipated. It actually in certain ways got brighter even if – it was a different thing after that. I mean, first of all, immediately after that, they then lost the title and everything else. Yeah. But they also got Kevin ramp won two championships, everything else. But – I don't think the takeaway from our statement of nothing lasts forever should be be disappointed, bet on failure, or anything like that. It's appreciate what you have while you have it because you never know how long you will.
0: Yeah, I think the the Warriors are very instructive in that way. And the situation they found themselves in this year, I mean, last year to some extent, although that was just more explainable by injury, but really now that they're you know Steph's back in the lineup, in theory, things should be starting to click back into place. And yet it's just been one thing after another with that team. And frankly, this is how it is supposed to work. You're not supposed to be good forever. You're not supposed to be contending forever. You're not supposed to be a 50 win team every season. And and that's what makes the accomplishments of what teams like the Spurs have been able to do, or at least were able to do before this current era. So impressive is their ability to to reload and to reinvent themselves. But that is the exception to the rule you know every other dynasty in history even the ones that that burn the brightest the teams we talk about as being the greatest teams in the history of the game those were teams that were on a a 3 or 4 year timeline a 3 or 4 year life cycle and then it's on to the next thing then it's you know players going their separate ways in search of new challenges in search of new opportunities just looking for a change of scenery maybe you know for whatever reason they decide that that's a the thing they need in their life but you know sticking together for anything more than a couple of years at a time is that, that is defying the precedent of the league. This is this is a sport that runs on a much shorter timeline than I think a lot of people understand.
1: It's a great point. And even in, when you're within that timeline, there are lots of different ways in the short and the... I mean, it's funny. At, at certain moments, people would talk about Team X and being like, oh, they only won a championship because Player X, Player Y, and Player Z were hurt on other teams. That's the way it always is. Yeah, every time. Every single time. And it that... That perspective is, is is extremely valuable because that doesn't make every champion undeserving. That doesn't make him anything else. It's just the way it works. And it is going to be so much fun to watch how this develops over the next couple of years. And also... How the players, you know, like this is a star driven league. We've talked a lot about, you know, the specialness of star players in this podcast, how they interpret what happens over the next couple of years. Because it looks like we're in a period preliminarily of some star stability. I think that, you know, LeBron and AD, it looks like they're staying in L.A. for a little while. Kawhi, if he resigns, he and Paul George will be in L.A. for a little while. Giannis just signed that big extension. And a lot of the you know the young stars are still on team control for a while. Luca, most notably, in some ways among them. But there's so many other ways these things can change. And the Harden trade is a, is yeah. a fantastic example of how that can be. And Kevin Durant choosing the Nets and where things go from here, it's very hard to predict. But I think back to something Ben Golliver said at one point where he's like, "Lots of things look inevitable in hindsight that are not that way at the time." And this feels like one of those moments in particular. That
0: Ben Goliver guy, you know, normally I don't trust him, but that that one actually has a, a ring of truth to it. The, the star market part of that is interesting, too, because I, I agree with you that I think we're kind of poised for a little bit of stability in terms of the movement at the highest levels of the league. But the way that used to work was people outside the league looking in and really people on teams looking around the landscape and thinking about, okay, who's the next guy who's going to be available after James Harden moves, who is the next star? And the way you used to do that was you would look at whose contract is coming up and who can put pressure on their team that way. I think we're learning that doesn't matter nearly as much as it once did and the the lever, level of leverage that guys have now and their ability to to choose their own adventure and to pick their destination throughout the league it 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 has changed the way that teams have to plan for these things where it it really is not as linear as it once was and so although it does i again i'm with you it it does seem like we should be stable for a bit that we should have a minute to breathe and see how all these teams come together uh, before any superstars start shuffling around. But I think, I think the way it's going to work for the next decade or so is going to be a lot of element of surprise.
1: Yeah, I think that's very true. I'm sure we could go on a lot of other things. Actually, before we go, I'll open it up. Is there anything else from this deadline that really stuck out to you that you want to discuss?
0: It's a good question. I feel like we've covered it kind of from one way or another, most of it. Um... I, I have one. Yeah, what you got?
1: I'm wondering what the Knicks do with their cap space. They've had this massively successful year. There are still ways to use it. Like, I mean, the Andre Drummond stuff, like, I'm not saying I like the fit, but I understand the idea of like, hey, we can use this money to sign a guy to a contract, potentially a multi-year contract. Like, that is an unusual competitive advantage. Knicks are having this wonderfully successful season, and there were ways, whether it was building the asset base or adding players who could actually help them right now, that they could have that they could have done. Leon Rose basically didn't choose any of those paths. You know, they got Terrence Ferguson, did a couple of small things on the margins. I'm wondering what happens.
0: I don't really remember a buyout market that was quite like this in terms of the options that a guy like Drummond is going to have. Now, obviously, the level of player that's available... You know, we're just not used to an Andre Drummond being, you know, on the market at this stage in the season, a guy of his reputation and name and he has flaws and problems as a player. Certainly, I wouldn't say he's he's quite uh, to my tastes as a basketball player. But I I would see why a team like the Knicks would want him, like the Celtics would want him, um, like the Hornets, who have been linked in those conversations, would want him. I, I get all of that. But the range of what teams can offer is incredibly interesting you know the knicks as you alluded to i mean they could they could throw quite a bit of money at andre drummond but you know pat out his wallet give him something for his trouble for what really what amounts to a rental and to, to see how, how how much he can help them in getting into and stabilizing in the playoffs and if you're willing to spend that then that's money well spent and then a team like the celtics offers him a totally different sort of opportunity while on the same time frame maybe a chance to get a hopeful contender back on track to fill out their rotation to give a kind of promise that the Knicks can't and then of course you have the Lakers who it's you know do you want to have do you want to be spoon-fed easy baskets by LeBron James when he comes back to the lineup Um, Do you want to put up some of the probably the best efficiency of your career playing for a championship level team? Something Andre Drummond has never even been close to sniffing. You know, he he, again, we were talking earlier about how we're, you know, we need to learn what certain team priorities are. I can't wait to see what Andre Drummond's priorities are.
1: There's one other option that needs to be mentioned here, and that is the possibility of the Knicks making a multi-year offer here. (laughs) That's true. Which is theoretically Drummond, you know, players, agency and all that. Being a big man in the league right now is very difficult in terms of predicting earning potential, and we also don't know what in the world the Knicks would offer in a multi-year kind of situation. But let's say they throw thirteen million a year for a couple of years out there. Maybe it's with three years. Let's say three years, forty million. Let's say that's the number. That's that. That's there. First of all, that's a crap ton more money this year. <laughs> Um, I don't know exactly what the set-off and all that structure would be, but that would be wild. I I think it would also potentially save the Cavs a bunch of money. I don't know. If if I have to go down that road, I will. But for Drummond, it's also a ton of risk mitigation, not only in terms of what could potentially be out there, but also due to their performance this year, the Knicks are in a much better situation. So this isn't taking... $15 $15 million, $13 million a year to be on some bad team, Like he's presumably locking in to being the starting center, or at least a heavy part of the rotation, on a potential playoff team. Probably not a title contender, unless RJ Barrett and some of these other guys take real steps forward. So I think if the offer is on the table, it has to be intriguing for Drummond, especially when you consider that some centers have gotten paid, but a lot of them haven't. And the guy who should give him cold sweats at night is Hassan Whiteside. Whiteside, while they are not the same player, in many ways they are similar players that arguments from people like me... Were that they were better at putting up counting stats than actually helping their teams on the floor. And Mm -hmm. when you think that there aren't that many center needy teams and all it takes is a couple of them to prefer somebody else, whether that's because they have a different skill set or because they're younger or because you think that their game is going to age better, you know, like whatever that reason is. So, can he really, if the Knicks make an offer of 13 million a year, can he really turn that down?
0: I love that the subtext of this conversation is how many different ways can we marginalize Mitchell Robinson in New York?
1: It's I, completely insane. <laughs> I mean, but Nerwin's Noel has outplayed uh, him this year. Like that is like also like Nurwins Noel should give Josh Drummond pause because Nerwins Noel has played well the last couple of years and he yeah. still hasn't gotten paid. Granted, he gets hurt more than Drummond does, but that I I wonder how players like Drummond are going to see this world and whether you know whether it's going to work out well for them or not. Like even like the, I've made fun of the Mason Plumley contract a lot, like and and it is still a little bit ridiculous and that they entrusted him to be the starting center. Remember on a team that they thought was going to, that they wanted to be good at least in some ways. Um, but like, it's it's wild. I, I I don't know I don't know what's going to come from it and. I don't know how I'm going to feel about it when it comes.
0: Well, and the lesson of, you know, if, if we want to invoke the Nerlens Noel parallel, the lesson of Noel was when the team makes you the offer, you know, like I, I think it was the Mavericks that offered him a pretty significant extension at the time uh, that, you know, that could be a significant turning point for your career. That could be the moment you look back at it and say, man, I really should have taken that guaranteed money while it was on the table. And with the with the league shifting as it is, with the devaluation of centers, with the move towards mercenary fives across the league, um, and, and the specific challenges of Drummond's skill set. Now, there, as we've talked about, there's a lot of teams who, at the moment, are looking are are lining up for the chance to meet with him. But I think some of that is just the opportunity and, and the uniqueness of, of this particular spot. But if he's just a, another free agent on the market, I, I'm not sure that he's getting overwhelming offers. But I'm I'm, I'm eager to be proven wrong, and I'm sure Drummond would, would love for us to be proven
1: wrong on that. We will have to see, but thank you so much for taking time. Absolute pleasure. Oh,
0: always fun, Danny. Thanks.
1: Thanks again to Rob Mahoney for taking the time to come on. You can read his excellent writing at The Ringer. You can also listen to The Ringer NBA show that he is the co-host of. His episodes are on Wednesdays. And you can follow him on Twitter at Rob Mahoney, R-O-B-M-A-H-O-N-E-Y. Love having Rob on, and it was the timing ended up being fortuitous. We had talked about doing it a little earlier, but I really enjoyed having him on after the deadline, and I loved where the conversation went. If you want to support this show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe download every episode that is extremely important for a show like real gm radio which will never come out a specific time or date because it's just about availability and this is a great example coming out on a saturday morning pacific time so hopefully you can do that whatever podcast player you use you should be able to subscribe spotify apple Podcasts, whatever it is you can also leave a rating leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing or you can just tell people about it that's something that can really help whether it's social media or just you know text chains with your friends or whatever that is appreciated whether whether it's a specific episode or the show in general. You can also check out Rob's other work, of course, and mine. Lots of written material at The Athletic both before and now after the trade deadline, doing a lot of fun stuff that will hopefully continue over the next little while take, tried to take about a day off just to really recharge. And then, of course, Dunked On still going strong. We did a well over two hour recording immediately after the deadline. And then we'll be back with a 15 and 60, which is our public episode that will be on Sunday slash Monday, depending on when you listen. And Dunked On Prime is the rest of the days of the week. And then we're doing our live show, the NBA cast that is on League Pass every Monday. And our one for this Monday is Heat Knicks, which is extremely exciting. It's going to be a lot of fun. So you can join us on League Pass and ask questions and all that. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, Daniel LaRue, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. That can be something you liked, something you didn't like, guests you think I should have on, and I, I get responses on that all the time. I, I'm not the greatest at replying, but I read everything every day. That's very important to me. And I have a few irons in the fire. There are people that have been asked that have been asked that I either I haven't had on or I haven't had on in a while, and most of those I'm looking into. And that's part of the fun of this, is that I'm trying to make a show that everybody likes and try to find great new people and everything else. So that is a part of the experience experience. experience here. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.